0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I'm going to talk about behavior and settlement patterns in coastal Stone Age communities, the evidence from stable isotopes. And I'm talking about this because... If we look at the long history of our species, we talk quite a lot about hunting and the role that hunting may have played in human evolution. We talk a bit about gathering plant foods and the importance of that. But we don't talk very much at all about the importance of coastal resources. And there are interesting questions about when people first began to use coastal resources, what the implications of this might be. And these questions are interesting because coastal marine areas like this are among the most productive habitats on Earth. And in more recent times, habitats like this have been very important for hunting and gathering populations. Why have they been important? Well, first of all, Coastlines provide abundant, reliable, nutrient-rich foods like the shellfish. They also provide marine mammals, which are sometimes washed up on the shore. One doesn't necessarily even need to hunt them. You can collect um, beached animals. And when a large animal like a whale is beached, that provides very large quantities of food indeed. Indeed. If coastal communities have the right technology, they can catch fish. Coastlines provide a range of uh, stone raw materials and other kinds of raw materials for making artifacts. Coastlines provide routes for dispersal. So one might expect that the line leading to humans would have taken advantage of coastal habitats from early on. I have to say, that we don't have much direct evidence of this. But that's at least partly because of issues to do with preservation. So over long time scales, coastlines shift, sea levels rise and fall, and so globally we've got very little archeology span of coastal areas that date to um, the earlier periods of, of human evolution. In South Africa, though, we're lucky because we've got a relatively stable coastline. At least it's remained stable over the last several hundred thousand years. And so we have many well-preserved coastal sites um, which make it a good place to investigate these kinds of questions. So in the latter part of the 20th century, most researchers thought that aquatic resources only became important relatively late in prehistory, once populations had already grown and additional sources of food were needed to uh, feed these extra mouths. But today rather different perspectives are being offered and some researchers are even suggesting that coastal adaptations may have played a role in the emergence of our species and that coastal adaptations may have promoted the particular behavioral patterns that characterize humans. So, what evidence do we actually have for early use of marine foods? Some of the earliest comes from around the Mediterranean, where at the site of Terra Amata in southern France, We've got shellfish that date to about 300,000 years ago. At Benzou in North Africa, there are shells dating to about 250,000 years ago. And at uh, the cave of Lazare, also in southern France, uh, slightly younger shells. At Terra Amata, these are associated with hand axes. But there are some mm, disagreements amongst archaeologists as to the dating of some of these sites, as to what these shells are actually doing there. Are they really food remains? So we're not entirely clear what what we're lo- what we're actually looking at in these sites. I think they probably are food remains because we know that it's not just humans that collect and eat marine foods. Mm -hmm. Non-human primates do it too. And this is a troop of baboons that lives very near Cape Town on the rocks collecting and eating mussels. This particular troop regularly forages in the intertidal. And they simply pull off the shellfish from the rocks and bite through them. There are some more pictures of them doing that. And this makes an important contribution to particularly the protein component of their diet. But these baboons don't do this very much. They spend less than 5% of their foraging time on the rocks. And the rest of the time they're eating terrestrial um, plants and small animals and so on. Primates do this elsewhere in the world too. We know that along the Somalian coast, uh, yellow baboons forage for marine foods. In Southeast Asia, uh, crab eating macaques uh, eat intertidal organisms. So this kind of behavior may well go back a long way in the human lineage. And, of course, Neanderthals ate shellfish. We know that because they left the shells in caves in Gibraltar and um, other places on the Iberian Peninsula. So I said earlier that coastal habitats were productive. But we're only just now beginning to realize exactly how productive they are. These are some photographs that were taken as part of a research project in South Africa where the researchers are working with local communities who collect shellfish to feed themselves. These are um, relatively um, impoverished rural communities and they collect shellfish as part of, part of their, their diet. And the researchers were looking at how long it takes, how much effort it takes to get a reasonable return in terms of the quantity of food gathered. And the results, I think, are astonishing. So on average, these collectors can get almost 1,500 kilocalories an hour by collecting shellfish. And under optimal conditions, so optimal conditions are spring, low tide, when the seas are calm, they can collect 3,400 kilocalories an hour. And if you think that a mm, sort of uh, medium-sized, moderately active person needs about 2,000 kilocalories a day, this is very productive foraging. And it's not hard. It's certainly a lot easier than trying to hunt down and kill large game animals. So coastal food resources are rewarding, they're abundant, but they are spatially restricted. They're restricted to the coast, the sort of linear um, uh, edge of the the land masses. And so some researchers are starting to explore the idea that perhaps foraging in a landscape like this, where the human groups would have been uh, sort of aggregated together, might have perhaps promoted the high levels of social interaction that are characteristic of our species. Here are some images of the site of Pinnacle Point which is arrowed in the small map on the bottom left there. Pinnacle Point has become famous for the evidence that it preserves of marine foods at 164,000 years ago. So the lower image here, that kind of bank of material on the left, is a consolidated deposit that has a lot of shells in it, it has a lot of stone artifacts in it, and it's cemented to the wall of the cave. It dates back to about 164,000 years ago. So we're now back sort of early-ish in the period of... uh, what some people uh, call modern humans. The question is though, what role did shellfish play in people's diets at this time? So were the people who lived in this cave collecting shellfish just occasionally, like the baboons do? Or were they focusing on these marine foods like more recent coastal hunter-gatherer populations do? Here are a couple of sites from the same part of the world that date to the last 12, perhaps even more recent than that, the last several thousand years. And you can see that those are huge shell middens. In the upper photograph, all of that grey area that you're looking at on the ground there, all of that is shell. That's hundreds of thousands of shells. On the bottom image, you can see very densely packed shell middens. And this is typical of the kinds of sites that we see in more recent time periods. In older time periods, many of the sites don't look as dense as this, don't seem to preserve this kind of evidence of intensive use of marine food. But it's often unclear whether that's because people were doing something different further back in the past, or perhaps whether the evidence is just often not so well preserved. So, in order to answer that question, in order to answer the question of how intensively were people back a hundred plus thousand years ago focusing on marine foods, we might turn to a different way of investigating this question And that is the kind of thing that I um, do a lot of, which is to measure the stable isotopes in the bones and the teeth of consumers in order to try to assess what they were eating. So the way this works is that we measure the ratios of carbon-13 to carbon-12, nitrogen-15 to nitrogen-14. And those, um, the two isotopes in the pair, the heavier and the lighter isotope, Progress at slightly different rates through the reactions that make up the global carbon and nitrogen cycles. And that happens somewhat differently on land and in the sea. So we can measure these isotope ratios in the bones of consumers, including humans, and assess more or less whether they were heavily dependent on marine foods or heavily dependent on terrestrial foods. And these pictures were taken in our lab in Cape Town. So we've done a lot of work like this on more recent coastal populations because we've got a lot more evidence from more recent times. And it makes sense, I think, to use that more recent evidence that we can interrogate more closely and then try to see whether we can reflect back on earlier time periods. So here are the results of some work that's been done um, on communities, coastal communities dating to the last few thousand years. And we have skeletons of people who died and were buried in the area marked by the yellow ellipse. They have somewhat unusual bone chemistry indicating very intensive use of high-trophic-level marine foods. Their bone chemistry is different from the bone chemistry of the people who died and were buried at the sites marked by the yellow star, although that yellow star is only about 14 kilometers away. The bone chemistry is sufficiently different that we can infer that there was a territorial boundary between the two, those two groups were separate because we see different chemical signatures in their bones reflecting diet over many years, probably several decades of their lives. Similarly, on the right, people who died and were buried in caves marked by the inland green star, the uppermost green star, had a different diet. They ate very little seafood, whereas people who died and were buried on the coast, marked by the lower green star, were eating a lot of seafood. So there was another territorial boundary between those sites over very small uh, areas of ground. In the middle, we haven't got so much evidence, so that's why there's a question mark there. We can do even better than this, we can look at diet through life by comparing teeth and bones. So teeth form in childhood and record the diet that the person was eating as a child, whereas bones continue to resorb and reform throughout life so they give a longer term average. And by comparing teeth that form relatively early in life, like the first incisor and the first molars uh, shown here, those teeth complete their formation pre-puberty. So we can look at a childhood diet and compare it with an adult diet, and we can tell whether people were living as children in the same area where they died and were buried as adults. In other words, we can tell whether people were bringing marriage partners in from outside their own territory or whether they were getting marriage partners from within their own group. And in this case, the people with the unusual bone chemistry in the yellow ellipse were marrying partners from within their own group. So what we've got here in recent time periods are societies that were very living out very specialized coastal adaptations. They were specializing in collecting marine foods, and they had a social um, and a, a, a kind of group organization that supported that way of life. And this kind of intense coastal specialization is, of course, documented in many other coastal hunter-gatherer societies elsewhere in the world, here in California, amongst other places, in other parts of North America, uh, in Europe and elsewhere. So one of the things we'd like to know is how far back in time does this go? How early in human development can we see this kind of intensive use of coastal resources and what might that tell us about the way that coastal resources may or may not have factored into, into human development? So we're only just starting to do this, but we now have some results from Class River where we've... Uh, Excavators have uncovered a number of uh, human remains. The work that I have done on these has been on the teeth, not on the bones, because the teeth preserve better over long time periods, like 110 or so thousand years. The teeth are more chemically stable, and so we can have more confidence in the measurements that we make on them. What we've found in our analyses of the teeth from classes is that back at about 110,000 years ago, some individuals were indeed specializing in marine foods. Other individuals were not. And we're seeing a wide range of variation that pretty much spans the range of variation that we see in populations dating to the last couple of thousand years. So it's clear from this that we can push the beginnings of significant reliance on marine foods back beyond 100,000. We don't know quite how far back yet, but towards the earlier uh, period of uh, the development of modern humans. And we wonder whether, if there were marine specialists back then, does that mean that populations back then were territorial as the same way that the coastal hunting and gathering populations were in the last few thousand years? Does that mean that we've got the same sort of anthropological correlates uh, that we see in more recent time periods? I don't know what the answer to that is. We're working on it, and perhaps in a few years we will have some answers.